With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Monergy Life. This is your host, Robert Fisher. Hello, Judith. Hi. Uh, excellent timing. I was just introducing you to the audience, and let me just complete my introduction. Uh, my guest, my very special guest tonight is Judith Kipper, the Director of Middle East Programs for the Institute of World Affairs. Good evening. How are you this evening? Very well, thank you. Glad to be with you. I'm glad uh, you're here as well. And uh, I'm sure that everyone in the audience realizes the importance of the Middle East, uh, not just in terms of oil, but in terms of people's lives and the future of the planet. Certainly, Judith, it's been in the news quite a lot lately. Yes, it certainly has. This is a region that is going through a monumental historic change that's going to take uh, many years to uh, work itself out, and obviously in each country it's uh, it's somewhat different, so we have to watch it closely and cope with it and deal with it as as well as possible. Before we get into some specific questions that I had for you tonight, can you give us a little idea as to your background and uh, and some of the um, uh, institutions you've consulted with uh, in the last few years? Certainly. I'm currently associated with the Institute of World Affairs, which is a Washington-based nonprofit uh, educational research organization. Uh, it was founded in 1924, and it deals primarily with uh, conflict resolution. Before that, I had uh, more than two decades uh, with the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. I established their um, regional program on the Middle East, the Middle East Forum, and uh, at that same time, I was a consultant to ABC News. So I've been in uh, quite a number of different uh, think tanks and uh, been a consultant to ABC News and currently I consult from time to time to the private sector. Before we get into some specific questions about the Middle East, I have one question to ask you. At this very moment, are you hopeful? Well, I'm, uh, you know, as an analyst on Middle East, I don't... Uh, I don't use uh, the language like uh, like being hopeful or not hopeful. I think that, as I said, the region is going through monumental historic change. It's going to produce some uh, very good results in time, and uh, there's likely to be some places where the results are not what one would like to see. So it's a period of transition that has to be watched closely. And... Uh do you think that the United States right now is either too involved in the Middle East, not involved enough? I mean, what's your take on our position vis-a-vis the Middle East? 
Well, we certainly don't have the United States uh, uh, certainly doesn't have the same influence across the region uh, as uh, we did some years ago. For example, in uh, in 1990 when we liberated uh, uh, the uh, Kuwait after the Iraqis had occupied it, we probably had more influence and power in the region than we ever had before or will ever have again. Today, that's not true because people have taken things into their own hands, and many of the leaders that the U.S. has worked with and supported because they were the leaders of those countries uh, have been ousted, and uh, uh, that's a strike against us because we supported them. So we, uh, we have to fashion a policy that is extremely flexible, uh, very sensitive, and uh, takes into account the limits uh, what the U.S. can do or should do. You know, in in this in this brief interview time, and and I think we could talk for hours about the Middle East. We only have thirty minutes. I want to start off uh, in focusing on Iran and uh, the recent visit of the newly elected president Rouhani. What's your impression of Rouhani? Well, I've been hearing about Rouhani for many, many uh, uh, years, that he was somebody uh, very key and important, and uh, I think that that's the case. I think that his election was something of a surprise, but it certainly indicates uh, that uh, the Iranian people uh, want change. Uh, I wouldn't call him a moderate, but he is certainly a pragmatist. He understands how the world works. He has uh, traveled uh, in the West, he speaks uh, some English and perhaps other languages. And uh, as, a, as an Iranian friend who was visiting while he's here, a uh, professor uh, said to me, Hatami before him, who was a reformer, was a, an, an intellectual, and he did not enjoy the backing of the supreme leader. Rouhani, on the other hand, is a very accomplished politician, and he does enjoy uh, the uh, backing of the Supreme Leader, and uh, when that uh, support wanes, I suspect that Rouhani has the political savvy uh, to know how to turn it around so that he can move forward in the direction he thinks Iran should go, which is right. also, uh, from what we know, a direction that the rest of the world would like Iran to go. And, uh, you know, I'm also sure that our perception of Iran, or let's say the average American's perception of Iran, is very limited because uh, I've never traveled to Iran, but I have been to the Middle East and some of the countries there. And I found that the people that I spoke with and encountered gave me a completely different impression than the news media did before going as to what I sure. might expect. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised if Iran is in the same boat. You know, it's very easy to hear the warmongering um, crowd in the United States talk about nuking Iran and wiping them off the face of the earth. But I think we forget that either 65 or 70 percent of the population in Iran is under 25. And most of those people are secular, and they probably want the same things as everyone else wants here, you know, just to live in peace. And uh, it's, it's sometimes it's, uh, it's easy to get caught up in, in rhetoric you know, when it comes to those issues? Well, I think that that's certainly uh, true. I think, you know, bad news is news. Good news and normalcy is not news. So there's always that problem. And because 
the United States has been cut off from Iran since 1979. We have very limited knowledge, but Iran is a very important country uh, with a great uh, history of the Persian Empire, great culture. Uh, it has 85 million people. It has about 98% literacy, which is more or less the same as the United States. It's a country of institutions. We don't particularly like the institutions that they uh, have right now. Uh, but it is a very, very sophisticated uh, population, and uh, it is absolutely a strategic interest, a vital strategic interest for the United States and the rest of the world to uh, uh, work with Iran uh, with this possible opening so that Iran can rejoin the international community uh, as it has been in in the past with full trade, diplomatic relations, uh, everything. Well, how effective or impactful has the embargo been on Iran? Well, there are a number of sanctions on Iran that have been quite painful for Iran, and certainly the results of the election that brought uh, Rouhani to power, I think uh, certainly the sanctions uh, uh, influence that outcome to a certain extent, and the sanctions are hurting Iran. That doesn't mean that Iran is totally on its knees. It's not. Uh, they have poor people, they have quite a lot of poor people, but nobody is starving in Iran. But the sanctions have been imp- important, and uh, when they are to be lifted or uh, uh, in these negotiations that will move forward, it's going to be a very contentious issue because clearly Iran will like them uh, uh, lifted early in the negotiations, and I suspect the United States and other parties uh, will only want to lift them when a deal is completed. Right. You know, I read a couple of weeks ago that uh, one of the prime motivating factors for Rouhani's um, more conciliatory approach here when he came to the UN and his and the interactions with our president is water, is that Iran is running out of water in a population that is rapidly increasing, and that if they remain as isolated as they are, they're not going to survive as a nation. Well, I wouldn't put it to uh, a single thing. They're not able to sell much of their oil at the moment. Their banking system has restrictions on it. Uh, Iran is a huge, important uh, geopolitically uh, a central country that really cannot live in isolation and expect to thrive. Uh, it's not good for Iran, and it's definitely not good for the neighbors of Iran or for the international community because of its geopolitical position. So I wouldn't put it on any one thing. I think they've made a strategic decision to try to end their isolation, to try to reconcile with the United States and the rest of the international community, and uh, there will be some very uh, sensitive negotiations. So you you don't think that water is going to be a central issue for them or is really motivating this? It may be motivating it, but it's not the only thing motivating it. This is, as I said, a a huge country and a geopolitically sensitive place, and they've been uh, living in increasing isolation since 1979. 
Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely, that's true. But with a rapidly increasing population and a possible scarcity of water, it's almost impossible for them to project, let's say, 20 years and be in the same political situation well, as isolated I, I don't, as they I don't, are. I don't, I don't think that water is, one, is a major motivating feature. There are other countries in the region that have a much, much, much worse water situation in the Arab world among the Arab countries that are, in fact, doing nothing about it. And, uh, you know, the, the prognosis for those countries is uh, much shorter. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't concentrate particularly on that single issue right. because this I is see. a conglomeration of issues. I see. Well, let's talk about the real hotbed issue then in Iran, which is the nuclear arms. Certainly when you read the newspapers, there seems to be a different point of view put forth by the Israelis and by the Americans in terms of how close Iran is to actually producing a nuclear bomb or having that capability. Where does the truth really lie, in your opinion? You know, I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, uh, obviously, the Israeli, this particular Israeli prime minister, as we saw while he was here in New York for the United Nations General Assembly, has an extremely uh, hardline view about Iran, quite contemptuous and insulting in his language, was roundly criticized in the blogosphere and uh, in major news outlets for his tone and attitude. Uh, uh, I don't think it's how close Iran is to a nuclear weapon. Nobody knows uh, if Iran even is working toward a nuclear weapon. There are signs that the kind of enrichment they are doing could mean they are working toward a nuclear uh, weapon. So that's what has to be negotiated. And I, and I suspect that the nuclear part of uh, the process uh, will turn out to be uh, uh, more doable, easier, uh, uh, if we can say that, than how you bring Iran back to the international community, that it's not a zero-sum game, that they're not going to give up their nuclear just because we say that we want them to give up their nuclear. It's going to have to be a broad deal that ends the sanctions, that normalizes relations uh uh, for Iran with the rest of uh, the international community, including uh, b- banking, trade, uh, uh, air transport, uh, and every other thing that you can think of. So it's very, very, uh, it's very, very complex. But, uh, you know, the nuclear negotiation is really very technical. So throwing things out in the public, they're close to a bomb, they're having a bomb, they don't have a bomb. Uh, doesn't serve anybody's purpose. This is a very, very technical question, and certainly uh, the U.S. has, as do the uh, other members of the the group of six, the Security Council plus Germany, uh, has exactly the right kind of people that uh, will be able to talk to the Iranian, uh, their Iranian counterparts to find a solution to the nuclear issue. Now, how does the, the institute that you're, where you're directed, the Institute of World Affairs, are they going to play a role in these coming negotiations? No, I don't think any outside party is going to play a role. This is a serious negotiation between, at the highest level of the uh, members of the Security Council, foreign minister level, and uh, plus Germany. So uh, this is government to government, and it's exactly as it should be. 
Now, in this in this this normalization, um, or at least let's let's characterize the talks as, as an attempt to normalize Iran's relationship with the international community. How do you think the position of recognizing Israel is going to be factored into this? It, uh, Iran recognizes Israel, and uh, uh, when uh, the foreign minister was asked about this question about the Holocaust, recognizing that the Holocaust happened, et cetera, uh, you know, he he answered in a way that would have had him arrested before Rouhani's election by saying the person who denied all that is no longer here, meaning Ahmadinejad. We have to remember that uh, in, in the pre-Khomeini uh, days, uh, before 79, that Israel, in fact, and Iran were allies, that there is still a substantial Jewish community uh, in uh, in Iran, and uh, uh, the rhetoric that we have heard uh, uh, should not be a predictor of the future. What we've heard in the past should not be a predictor of the future. Including demonstrations of people, um, for instance, there were some demonstrations when Rouhani came back to Iran, was this just an attempt by the supreme leader and the religious council to um to reflect uh its its ultimate word its ultimate superiority over the president to sort of keep him in check or to keep the hardliners no, happy what do you think just no, to keep the hard- no 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 i wouldn't interpret it that way for the time being the supreme leader has given a mandate to Rouhani. Uh, to try to uh, solve the nuclear question and to take uh, Iran out of isolation. He's given him a mandate, whether it's six months, a year, two years, we don't know. I do not believe that the demonstrations when he returned home had anything to do with the Supreme Leader, but it did have to do with the constituency of hardliners that opposes any change because they are profiting from profiting politically and financially from Iran's isolation. Uh, And uh, uh, certainly it was uh, an organized attempt to remind him that there is a domestic constituency that is going to oppose him. Uh, And that has to be understood in the negotiations because he has to get something, and he has to get something fairly early in the negotiations so that he can maintain uh, his position and keep the hardliners uh, who oppose any kind of normalization, uh, keep them uh, in the background and under control. So do you see normalization as a fait accompli with Iran? I mean, could you project and say, well, based on the signs that you're seeing now with the, with the Supreme Leader giving his go-ahead to Rouhani, for either six months or a year to help normalize things. Can you can you project? Can you? I'm I'm not asking for any kind of guarantee here, but do you believe that within a year or two that there will be substantial normalization between Iran and the Western powers, including the United States? I think that it's more than fifty percent chance, but until it's done, it's not done. I think, as I said a moment ago, I think that these, uh, in Iran they have made a strategic decision uh, to change course. 
Uh, it is certainly a vital interest of the P5, the Security Council 5, including the United States plus Germany and the entire rest of the world, and it would be the single best thing that could happen to, for Israel as well as for all the other countries in the Middle East, because uh, some of the Arab countries are just as concerned as the Israelis are by uh, about any American rapprochement with Iran, because Iran is big, it's powerful, it had an empire, it's a very large country, 85 million people, and uh, there uh, is a tremendous amount of animosity between some Arab countries and Iran. So uh, the U.S. has a very huge... A diplomatic uh, job in front of it to be in constant dialogue and consultation with uh, uh, with the uh, neighbors and uh, to reassure people and keep them informed about what's going on so that nobody uh, is going to be tempted to sabotage these efforts. Right. Uh, well, that's it's quite interesting, and I'm sure we'll all be deeply um, tuning into the, the new developments that occur in, in this rapprochement with Iran. Uh, just turning in the few minutes left that we have, believe it or not, we only have 10 minutes left in, in our chat. Oh, my God. Uh, I know. it's uh, Like I said, I think we could probably talk for hours about this. It's so interesting, and I'm sure the listeners are captivated by this. Uh, let's talk for a few moments uh, about Egypt and about what's going on there. Um, what's the current situation in Egypt in terms of um, prognosis for uh, democratic institutions really taking hold there? What, what's your take on that? Well, I think in the, uh, in the longer term, 5 to 10, 15 years, that Egypt's going to make it uh, uh, because the people are no longer afraid of their government. But recent events and the behavior of the Egyptian army, which is an instrument of the state, uh, not the man, uh, has been extremely unexpected, unfortunate, and uncharacteristic of uh, of Egypt. Because Egypt is a country of farmers. Uh, maybe there's four or five murders. They, too, have 85 million people. And the four or five murders that they do have in the country per year are, are honor killings in the most remote villages. They don't have violent crime. They're not used to violence in the country. So the uh, the actions of the army uh, this past Sunday, as well as during the summer when more than a thousand people were killed, uh, has created a very, very difficult situation that's going to touch a lot of people in Egypt, and it's going to take them a century to get over it. Uh, the U.S. has suspended a good deal of the aid uh, that we provide to Egypt, which is primarily American. Uh, 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 military assistance. We give them money and they buy American weapons with the money we give them and that has not completely uh, been suspended but a good part of it has been suspended and that is a very major step to uh, demonstrate that the United States is not at all happy with the direction uh, that uh, that has uh, uh, has become the norm in Egypt, and uh, we will have to see what happens. The chief of the army, who has been uh, really the most powerful man in Egypt since uh, President Morsi was uh, was uh, taken out of power, uh, is going to leave the army, and uh, he will undoubtedly run for president uh, when they have a new presidential election, and that means there will be another military man 
at the head of an Egyptian government. He's very popular. He's very likely to get elected. And that could be problematic for the democratic process. I see. I, you know, I find it amazing watching the events that have unfolded in Egypt, how the government that was elected, who, and of course, um, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood was, uh, you know, the, the former president, and now that he's been taken out of power, it's almost as if when you read accounts of the situation in Egypt, it's almost as if, you know, the the rhetoric is, well, the Muslim Brotherhood has been neutralized or put in its place, but it's almost half the population that supported him. So no, that's not true. That's not true. The Muslim Brotherhood, maybe they voted for him in this past election after having 30 years of uh, Mubarak's dictatorship, which was... It was not a benign dictatorship, even though the U.S. Uh, supported Mubarak very, very strongly. In Egypt, for many, many, many decades, probably for, uh, since the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, became a party, about 15 to 20 percent maximum of Egyptians uh, support the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, but the fact that they have banned it, seized its assets, arrested all its leaders, uh, is going to come back and bite them because, of course, you cannot kill an idea by arresting people and issuing laws to ban them. Uh, they were underground for 80 years, and they're going to be underground again. They are highly organized. They have been uh, uh, and uh, nonviolent for many, many decades, and uh, so this is a really unfortunate situation. They are going to have to be a political party just like uh, uh, you know, uh, other uh, 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 religious political parties exist in other countries in the region and elsewhere in the world. Right. When I said that half the people were part of the Muslim Brotherhood, I didn't mean actual members, but they did vote one of his yes. um, one right. of its members into presidency. That's what I really meant to imply. That's uh, right. And, they, and it's unfortunate because they had said that they weren't going to present a presidential candidate because they were the only organized group. Because when you take away a dictator, there's absolutely nothing underneath. But the right. Muslim Brotherhood was underground and very, very organized. But, right. you know, Morsi did do more damage in one year than uh, than Mubarak did in 30 years. And believe me, Mubarak, Mubarak did a fantastic amount of damage uh, to Egypt. Uh, he took it backwards. So uh, the fact that he was removed, of course, it was a coup, but it was a coup that was uh, prompted by popular protest. Uh, and uh, But what uh, what the army did thereafter... I think was extremely unfortunate and uh, has made the journey uh, and the transition uh, from dictatorship to something else in Egypt much more difficult, more painful, and uh, more problematic. I, I tend to agree with you there. In the few moments we have left, let's talk about the the, the, the white elephant in the room, which is Syria. And... Uh, what are Assad's chances for remaining in power? What do you think they are? Well, I don't think he's going to leave power willingly, nor is he going to uh, be chased out of power uh, anytime soon by the opposition. So the best hope that we see is that the U.S. and the Russians finally agreed on something to get rid of the chemical weapons. There was a U.N. Security Council resolution to do so. They are cooperating and uh, there needs to be uh, 
uh, a conference uh, in Geneva where the U.S. uh, and the Russians, as well as other parties, uh, will uh, use their full persuasive powers to have an orderly transition by which there will be an election and uh, somebody else will get elected and Assad will therefore be out of power. Is it true that Assad could never have remained in power this long without the uh, support of the Russians? Absolutely. It's almost as if we can rewind 20 or 30 years and see how the Russians were arming Syria in all the wars against Israel. And they had they have apparently just remained a very strong ally of Syria even after the breakup of the Soviet Empire. Yes. That's right. They have a base there, and uh, uh, you know, uh, they uh, at the time before the uh, Assad government began slaughtering its own people with military machines, uh, nobody could object to that. You know, we're selling arms. We're giving Egypt money to buy arms from us. The Syrians are buying arms from Russia. And the Russians have a base there. We have a base in out of the 22 Arab countries. We have a military arrangement with almost all of them, probably all of them except Syria these days. And we uh, we have bases in many countries. So there's no reason that Russia shouldn't uh, uh, do what it thinks is in its interest. The problem with Russia was the support for Assad while he was massacring his own people. Uh, it's almost as if they look the other way. I, I don't know if they look the other way. They didn't see it in their interest to give in to an American way of doing things. They needed to be included. And who knows what the conversations were between the Russians and the U.S. until they came recently to the agreement uh, to go to the U.N. about the chemical weapons, because Russia clearly did not want another American military action uh, in the the region. But, you know, Russia has its interests. They're not identical to American interests. And uh, you know what? We're big and powerful, but uh, the world doesn't look like us, isn't going to act like us, and we're going to have to accept that other countries have a different way of looking at things and a different way of protecting their interests. I think now the U.S. and Russia have come to an agreement and can work together. Well, let's hope that uh, let's, let's hope that you're right, and we're, run, we're fast running out of time. I want to thank my special guest, Judith Kipper, Director of Middle East Programs at the Institute of World Affairs, and to all my listeners, this is Monogy Life. Good evening, Judith, and thank you so much for being a guest on my show. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Good night. Good night. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.